Good morning, everyone. Everybody sleepy today? Oh, man. You know, my, I don't know if you're like me, but my phone changes time automatically. So I didn't even realize the time had changed until I got in my car and I saw what time like it was yesterday. And I was like, oh, no wonder. I feel like I got run over by a Mack truck. Um, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. This is the third week in our series that we're calling In the Garden. We're looking at Jesus's life framed by the prayer that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. And if you remember, we are asking the question, what kind of life produces that type of prayer? And we're starting with the premise that the prayers of not my will, those types of radical prayers, they don't just happen. They don't arise naturally in our lives. Jesus's life was lived in such a way that when it came time for him to have to pray that prayer, he was ready to pray that prayer. So last week we looked at Jesus's baptism and we looked at the significance of that baptism on his life. And we decided or, or we talked about the idea that not my will happens in Jesus's life, first of all, by being willing to claim the status of being the beloved of God. So at Jesus's baptism, the heavens open, the voice speaks, you are my son who I dearly love. And this, I believe, has a tangible impact on Jesus's life where he is able to walk forward, go forward with this sense of being loved at the core, at the most uh, deepest part of his being. And today we're gonna move forward in his life just a tiny little bit. We're gonna move forward from the baptism to something that happens immediately after the baptism, and that is the temptations. Now, not these temptations, unfortunately, though I would probably not mind at least hearing well, let's just do it. Let, let's just roll that. I know you want to leave me, mm. but I refuse to let you go. If All right. Away, That's probably enough or we'll never get out of this. We'll just play the Temptations Greatest Hits. We're talking about the temptations, the testings, the trials of Jesus. They happen immediately after his baptism. Now, unlike the last two weeks, this story does not appear in all four Gospels. Only Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the stories of the temptations, the testing of Jesus. And Mark's version is very, very brief. Very, very brief. Just a couple of sentences. And so uh, Matthew and Luke have the most extensive versions. They're quite similar. There's some subtle differences. We're going to use Luke's version if for no other reason, then actually I, I haven't spent a lot of time comparatively in the gospel of Luke, but I'm reading it right now uh, just through my Bible reading plan. So we're going to use Luke's text for uh, the temptations. It's in Luke chapter 4, so if you have a Bible, you might want to start heading there now. And I'm just going to teach through the story. We're just going to talk about the story, talk about what's going on. I'm going to make some observations and uh, hopefully we'll come away with some, some takeaways and another insight into how Jesus has lived his life. So the text begins like this in chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. 
Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about how in Jesus's baptism, there were a lot of threads of the Jewish story kind of coming together in this moment. And one of the threads of that story was the Exodus. Now, if you don't know, God's people were enslaved in Egypt for a long period of time. And then God set them free and they, they became free by crossing through the Red Sea, crossing through the waters. God calls Israel his son. Jesus somehow is summing up the Exodus story or at least part of the Exodus story, Exodus story in his baptism when he crosses through the waters. And then immediately following that, we're told that he's led into the wilderness for 40 days. And this is another uh, another opportunity, another attempt, another story that Jesus is saying where he is reenacting the story of God's people. So God's people come out of Egypt. They go into the wilderness for 40 years. It's a time of testing. We're told in Deuteronomy that just before they go into the desert, uh, that, that, that God has said, this is a time where I'm going to test you. And Jesus does the same thing. He comes out of his baptism. He crosses through the waters and then he enters the wilderness. And Lent is our effort to walk the walk that Jesus walked. As Jesus walked for 40 days in the desert, we take 40 days to deal with some of the stuff that's going on in our lives. Now, it's really important and really fascinating to me that Jesus throughout his ministry does this over and over again where he reenacts the story of God's people through his ministry, really broadly speaking, the, the story of God's people is this. They get free from Egypt. They wander 40 years. They come into the promised land. But then, first of all, they fight a whole bunch of wars. They kill a whole bunch of people. Then they establish a kingship, a royal line that goes horribly wrong. Almost every king in the line of God's people is a bad, bad king. And Israel, God's people, are supposed to be the light of the world. I got news for you. If you think light of the world only happens in the New Testament, you got another thing coming. In the Old Testament, God tells his people, you're to be a blessing to the nation. You're to be the light of the world. But Israel cannot get it right. So eventually they're exiled. They're taken away from the land. And what Jesus does in his life in fascinating ways is he reenacts the story of God's people, but this time he gets it right. He tells the story the way it's supposed to be told. He corrects the mistakes that God's people have made beforehand. So he's in the wilderness. He doesn't eat for 40 days. And I love this last little phrase, which is actually incredibly important. Jesus became hungry. I want you to blow by that phrase. Because again, we are tempted to think that Jesus goes into the wilderness and just floats around the wilderness and fasts for 40 days, but because it's Jesus, it doesn't affect him. So he's like, yeah, I haven't eaten for 40 days. That's cool. <laughs> the scriptures tell us that Jesus was hungry. And we're going to get to why this is so profoundly important for our lives. But this is the state he's in when the devil shows up. So let's pick up in verse three. 
Then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Now, I don't know what the devil looks like. I don't know if he's red. I don't know if he has horns coming out of his head or a tail or cloven hoofs. I don't know. But somehow, in some form, in some persona, he comes to Jesus. And Jesus is what? Hungry. Real hungry. I can't even make it like six hours without eating. 40 days, please. And he says to Jesus, hey, you're hungry. There's stones all around you. Turn them into bread. Now, I would be out at this trial because if you know my relationship with bread, if I had the ability to turn things into bread, I'd be driving like a bread car. You know, just bam, and like an Italian loaf car, and you're just like. So Jesus is hungry. It's his, it's his need right then. And then the devil does this, and it's so subtle. It's so subtle. He says, if you are the son of God, do this thing. Now, what had just happened in the story? Jesus was baptized. What happened at Jesus' baptism? The heavens parted, and the voice spoke. And what did the voice say? You are my son whom I dearly loved. And right after that, the devil is seeking to plant this doubt in Jesus' mind. You're hungry. If you're God's son, turn these stones into bread. Jesus knows he's God's son. But the devil is using this Pressing need. Jesus is what? Hungry. And the devil is using it to question what God had just told Jesus. You get that? God had just told him, you are my son. The devil's like, if you are God's son, turn these into bread. Because you're hungry. And the deal with this is that this is not just a story for Jesus. It's a story for us. Because what's going on here is that Jesus has an immediate need. He has a pressing need. He has something that is staring him in the face. He's hungry. And the devil shows up and says, hey, you can take care of that need. Just doubt what God told you. And you can take care of this need. And so if I was taking something away from this first temptation, this first trial, I would simply say this, that in your life, be wary of falling under the tyranny of the urgent. Because we all have pressing needs. Maybe you haven't fasted for 40 days, but we all live our lives with things that press in on us. And you will be tempted to doubt the long view and the faithfulness of God for the tyranny of the urgent. And what do I mean by this? I mean, we all, 
deal with and are threatened by uh, most of the same things in lives. Maybe, maybe you're lonely and a relationship opportunity comes along. And this need that you have is right now, I'm lonely, God. And this relationship comes your way. And you're like, I'm not, I'm not too sure about this. Maybe your friends, maybe your family are, I'm not too sure about this relationship. But the need is right there. And so you fall under the tyranny of the urgent and you find yourself in a relationship that is destructive and not life-giving. Maybe you have a financial need. Maybe you, you need a car fixed. You need furniture. You need something in your life. It is a pressing need. It is right there. Jesus was what? And right there, there's this like six months, same as cash. 90 days, same as cash. And the need is pressing on you. And you take a shortcut. And you find yourself in credit card debt that you can't get out of for years, maybe decades. We all have these things. The first temptation is do not be tricked by the tyranny of the urgent. Sometimes you just gotta take a breath. <sighs> okay, there's a God and he's faithful. Maybe I can't solve this problem right now, but maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. Maybe I just gotta wait a little bit. But the devil's not done. Verse five, then the devil took him up and revealed to him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. And Jesus replied again, quoting scripture, Deuteronomy again. The scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, I don't wanna be flippant about this, but I actually think this is the easiest one of the temptations, right? In Jewish tradition, uh, there was a tradition that said the devil owned the world. The devil had gotten the keys to the world. And there's a really cool moment in Revelation 5 where Jesus gets the keys back. But for the moment, for our story, let's, the devil says, here's everything. And Jesus is like, you have to serve the Lord your God only. And the reason I think this is the easiest, temp, the easiest temptation, the easiest trial to face, and I think it's the, the easiest one for our, to wrap our minds around, is because you know what? Kingdoms are the same now that they were in the ancient world. Nothing's changed. The kingdoms are the same. The kingdoms are about money, power, status. It's the same for us as it is for Jesus. The devil offers the same stuff. He doesn't have anything new to bring to the world. He just brings the same old stuff. How about a little money? How about a little more status? How about a little more power? And the thing I would say, the takeaway that I would encourage you to think about with this trial, with this test, is simply this that kingdoms always have a tendency to bend toward idolatry. And what is idolatry? It doesn't have to be a little figure that's put in the corner of your house that you light a candle to. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry is whatever you trust for your ultimate salvation. Whatever you trust to get you through, that is an idol. So the devil says, here, all the kingdom, Jesus is like, you got nothing new for me, devil. Worship the Lord your God only. 
And that's a message for us too. You might be offered the kingdom. You might be offered all the money that you could ever think about. You might, think, you might be offered uh, the job that you couldn't imagine ever having. It's not about not taking the job. It's about who are you gonna trust to get you through? It's that simple. But the devil's not done. And he comes back at Jesus and he brings it this time. And it doesn't look like it bring, he brings it, but he does. So it says, then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple. The temple's really big. And said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, hey, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy again uh, versus this test, versus this trial. And did you notice what happened? Do you notice what language the devil used again when he came back to Jesus? He started this trial the same way he started the first trial. He said what? If you are the son of God. So again, he comes at Jesus with the invitation to doubt what God had said to him. But this time, ooh, he ups the ante. He says, Jesus, take yourself to the highest part of the temple and throw yourself off. If you're the son of God, God won't let you get hurt, Jesus. If you're God's son, if you're God's beloved, he won't let anything happen to you. But see, I think Jesus, in fact, I would say, hmm, I know that Jesus knows where his life is heading. And is Jesus going to be hurt? Yeah. But is he still God's beloved? Yeah. And so the devil in this moment is offering him a cheap form of sonship. He is saying, be God's son, but don't suffer. Don't go to the cross. Don't be beaten. Don't be tortured. This gets at the entire essence of why Jesus is coming. This is why it's the third temptation in Luke's gospel. Is because it is about everything that Jesus is eventually going to have to do. Can Jesus be the beloved without suffering, without actually being hurt? No, he can't. So the, the takeaway from this trial is simply for us is this. Be wary of any spirituality that ignores suffering. Because it's not real. It's a lie. Because suffering is real. Because Jesus was what? I think there's a tendency, at least there was in my life, to see the think that, that these trials were never in doubt. Because he's Jesus, he's gonna go into the wilderness the trials are gonna come and of course he's gonna get the right answers because he's Jesus. Can you imagine being in Sunday school with Jesus? 
So there's a tendency in our mind to think that when Jesus goes into the wilderness and the devil comes to him, that this is gonna be a piece of cake for Jesus. But here's the thing, and you, you've gotta understand this, or we have to understand this. These trials have to be real. They are real. Jesus had to pass these things. Not just in the Sunday school Jesus way. He had to say yes, and there had to, and be careful with this, but he, there had to be a risk of him saying no. And here is why. Hebrews chapter two puts it this way. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect. In what way? Every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. And here, this is so awesome. Since he himself has gone through suffering and what? Testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. Think about that. These trials had to be real so that someday, 2,000 years later, when you're being tested, when you're being squeezed, when you're being confronted, when you are hungry, when you are lonely, that you can turn to this man, Jesus, and Jesus can say, I've been there. I have walked your walk. And I don't know about you, but that brings me great comfort. Because I know I'm not alone. I know that Jesus has walked into the wilderness. He has faced the biggest temptation that he could face. Hey, Jesus, how about not suffering? And he said, no, I won't accept it. He was made like us so that we can become like him. As one theologian said a long time ago. So, I want to take a step back and I want to talk about one other aspect of the wilderness. Because the thing about uh, the wilderness is that for most of us, sometimes we can choose to not be tempted in fact, we can choose to not go into the wilderness at all. And the wilderness really at its heart is, is really about uh, something new and unknown. The wilderness it comes to us in a variety of different forms and fashions, and it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be the place that's out in the dark, that there's desert, that it's hot, that there's mosquitoes or wild animals. The the wilderness can just be a place you've never gone before. And for most of us, those places come to us and we say, do I wanna go here? 
Because I don't know if I want to go into a place that's going to make me uncomfortable. I don't know if I want anything new in my life right now. I was thinking about this this week, and, and, and I, remember, I, I recall being people who are like dubious about different email services, right? Like I thought I'd ask this, does anybody still have an AOL email account? Oh, my gracious. <laughs> right? Like there are people who, who they got an email address decades ago, and it was like AOL came along, and then it was like Yahoo and Hotmail. I actually... I actually insulted a member of this community for having a Hotmail address. He sent me an email, and I sent him an email back and said, are you the only one still on Hotmail? <laughs> and there, there became like this, well, I don't want to go to that Yahoo thing, or I don't want to do that Gmail thing, because it's all weird and new, and I don't need a new email address. People get hung up on embracing new things all the time, because new is uncomfortable sometimes. New stretches you. New makes you reconsider all your presuppositions, all right? So what I wanna do is I was thinking about this. What is the wilderness for you? I'm just gonna bring up a list of what the wilderness might look like for you. So maybe the wilderness is a new aspect of serving in this community. Maybe you have occupied space in that seat or that seat or that seat for way too long. It's got like an imprint of your behind on it. And you think, well, I should serve. I should go on a mission trip. I should do something. But that's new. And that might stretch me. I don't know if I want to be stretched. Maybe the wilderness for you is being alone. Maybe you've been in a relationship. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm talking to people who aren't married yet because that's a covenant, Right? But maybe you're younger, maybe you're not married yet, and you've gone from relationship to relationship to relationship to, to relationship because you're terrified of being alone. Maybe the wilderness for you is learning how to be content and alone and secure in who God made you to be because you're the beloved. Maybe the wilderness for you is forgiveness and reconciliation. Maybe you were carrying around in anger and a resentment to somebody. And you are more comfortable in that than you would be in the newness of being released from that. Don't get me wrong, it's uncomfortable. And you can choose not to go there, but there's a cost. Maybe newness for you is taking responsibility for your life. Instead of being always like, well, it was this person's fault that I did this, or it's this person's fault that I became this way, that it's time for you to wake up and go, it's my life, I have to live it. Or maybe the newness for you is doing the hard work to admitting that you have an addiction. There's all kinds of new. There might be something that comes to your mind right now that's not on this list. That's your wilderness. You don't wanna go into it in a way, you have a choice, although these things have a way of kind of circling back and chickens have a way of coming home to roost in this respect. But here's what I love about the wilderness, right? Because the devil comes at Jesus twice with, if you are the son of God. 
And Jesus passes both those tests. And he comes out and says, you know what, devil? I am the son of God. And not because I turned stones into bread, although let's face it, that would be pretty cool. Not because I threw myself off the temple and angels protected me. You know why I know that? Because God told me. You see, the wilderness and times of trial have ways of reminding us who we are at our essence. So you don't go into these wildernesses. You don't embrace this level of newness in your life. You don't get a chance to grow. And you don't get a chance to find out who you really, really are. And that's a gift. Take it from somebody who is still wandering the wilderness in a lot of ways in, in my life. But I know truths about me that I've never known before. I'm not perfect, but I'm learning. And that's pretty cool. So to add to our list of how not my will happens, we said last week it's about radically claiming your belovedness in sight of God, this is about uh, not my will happens by you being willing to embrace times of testing and trial and growth. Amen? Let's stand for closing prayer.